there's this terrible irony that exists with any tragedy at scale. People have the tendency to become numbers. The bigger the problem, the less human its face. The easier it is to distance our empathy from reality. Psychologists have a term for it. Psychic numbing. As someone who is privileged enough to have a platform, I think about this concept a lot. How do we talk about epidemics in a way that addresses the magnitude of the problem without losing sight of the people who are affected every single day? It can sometimes feel like trying to catch all of the droplets of a waterfall with just your hands. An impossible task. I don't have the answers, but today I'm going to try starting with the people. Two of them, before moving on to the crisis. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want to introduce you to two indigenous women, Aubrey Dameron and Antoinette Cayadito. Their stories reflect a crisis that has slid under the radar for decades. If the rest of us want to be allies, we must first understand the problem. Growing up as a kid in the United States, I was taught to say Native American, as though the concept of America was so predestined that even the indigenous population was in on it from the very beginning. We often forget that long before Jamestown, this land was ruled by sovereign nations, tribes of people with unique ideologies, religious beliefs, and laws. Nations that are still around today. Indigenous culture is not past tense, it's not reserved for tourist traps or performed for the benefit of outsiders. It lives, breathes, and evolves with the people it belongs to. Aubrey Dameron's born in 1994 and grows up on the Cherokee Nation Reservation in Northwest Oklahoma. Her hometown, Grove, is exactly what you'd expect from a Midwestern town with a population of 6,000. Quiet, idyllic, a little blue-collar, traditional. By her town standards, Aubrey's far from traditional. She's a two-spirit, which is an approximate translation for a highly respected identity within many First Nation tribes. The term derives from a Northern Algonquin dialect, and historically, it was assigned to those who broke free from traditional gender roles and were thought to know magic. You'll hear people describe two spirits as those who exist in both masculine and feminine spirits. But that's not totally accurate. And the reason is, it uses binary language to describe something meant to exist completely outside of any binary. English just isn't equipped to describe the diversity of expressions in American indigenous traditions. That said, today, two-spirit has been embraced by modern indigenous communities. It's become something of an umbrella term for indigenous people who identify as members of the LGBTQIA community. People like Aubrey. 
In high school, Aubrey comes out as trans. She begins transitioning around 2011, and as a result, she quickly becomes a social pariah. For the next year, she endures horrible, intense bullying. As is far too common for members of the trans community, before long, she doesn't feel safe at school. Rather than step in and help, the school's administration tells Aubrey's parents that being trans is, quote, distracting to her fellow classmates. She transfers to an alternative school for senior year, but the harassment continues, both online and around her hometown. Aubrey's uncle, Christian Fencer, is a safe haven for her. The two are extremely close. He later tells Two News Oklahoma, whenever she would go in public places, she knew that people were going to be looking at her, like she was an exhibit. I can't imagine what that's like, but I can't help but wonder whether Aubrey's bullies felt threatened by her strength. She comes at an age when everyone wants to fit in. She's self-assured, unbothered by the status quo, and she does her best to not let the bigotry get her down. She prays for those who hate her. Aubrey starts to advocate for the LGBTQIA community, becoming a fixture at meetings and events across Delaware County. She also enrolls at a college about 40 minutes north of Grove, though I'm not sure what she studies. But eventually, all those years of bullying and harassment take their toll. There's no clear timeline on this, but at some point, she starts abusing drugs and alcohol. She moves to New Mexico in her early 20s with her boyfriend, Jay. Then, after a year away and a devastating breakup, she decides to move back home for emotional support and to seek help with her substance abuse. It's a decision that upends her life, one that should be celebrated, and yet it's another example of Aubrey fighting for herself. Which brings us to March 9th, 2019. Around 3 a.m., Aubrey messages friends on Facebook, asking for a ride somewhere. She doesn't mention a destination or why she needs to get there at 3 o'clock in the morning. Unsurprisingly, at that hour, nobody responds. 30 minutes later, Aubrey's mom, Jen, wakes up to use the bathroom. She runs into her daughter in the hallway. Aubrey looks like she's dressed for a night out. She's wearing a black miniskirt and black-heeled boots. She tells her mother she's going to meet someone, she doesn't say who, and heads out the door before Jen can ask questions. Jen's surprised by her daughter's behavior, but Aubrey's an adult. She can come and go as she pleases. So she watches her daughter walk across the yard, down the street, and disappear into the darkness. The next morning, Aubrey's not home, and Jen starts to worry. Her daughter left her purse and epilepsy medication behind. Aubrey depends on those meds to control her seizures. If she was planning to stay the night somewhere, she would have taken them. Jen calls her daughter, but she doesn't answer. She calls Aubrey's friends, her uncle Chris. Nobody's seen her. Her family and friends spend the next two days desperately trying to get a hold of Aubrey. On the morning of March 11th, a missing persons report is filed with the Delaware County Sheriff's Department. I'm not sure why Aubrey's family waits two days, but I will say that movies and TV shows have popularized the idea that you have to wait 48 hours before you can declare someone missing. 
So just let me reiterate, there is no waiting period, no amount of time that needs to pass to report someone missing. If you feel like someone you know is in danger, you have every right to make your concern heard, and you should. Unfortunately, when the Damerons do report Aubrey missing, the police don't jump into action. In fact, they're not even convinced that she is missing. The next day, March 12th, Aubrey's ex-boyfriend Jay receives a panicked call from a woman named Dianette. It's about Aubrey. Jay knows Dianette. Aubrey and her used to be good friends. He remembers they had a big falling out a while back, but he hasn't talked to Aubrey in months, so he assumes they made up. Dianette says she knows where Aubrey is. She's in danger. Dianette tells Jay that Aubrey's being held against her will in a town nearby, Ketchum, Oklahoma. She owes drug dealers a lot of money, and if her captors don't get it soon, they're going to kill her. She begs Jay to send whatever he can to cover the ransom. Dianette says she's already given every last cent she has, and it's still not enough. Before hanging up, Jay agrees. He doesn't immediately send the money though. Jay calls the police first to let them know what's happening. He wants support to make sure Aubrey comes home alive. After police do a little digging, they learn Dianette made the whole thing up. There was no ransom, no drug dealers holding Aubrey captive. Dianette lied to manipulate Jay into sending her money because according to her, she was broke. It appears Dianette doesn't have any remorse though. In fact, she's downright dismissive and tells the police she doesn't think Aubrey's actually missing. According to her, she's probably just off partying somewhere, avoiding family and friends. Now, this is disgusting behavior. It's both taking advantage of a missing person case for personal gain and dismissing the legitimate effort to find her. When it comes to obstructing progress, it doesn't really get any worse. The police charged Dianette with extortion, but for reasons I can't understand, they ultimately agree with her point of view. Rather than take the concerns of the Dameron family seriously, they wait six more days before actually considering Aubrey missing. And it's six days of radio silence. Now, the Cherokee Nation Reserve has its own law enforcement, which raises questions around why Aubrey's family didn't turn to their reservation marshals for help when they weren't getting any from state police. But the truth is, it's not that simple, and they had perfectly good reasons not to. This is important. Tribes are semi-sovereign. While they're entitled to their own marshals under US federal law, Reservation marshals can only handle cases between indigenous people. If a non-native commits a crime against an indigenous person, they have no jurisdiction. The case has to go to state police. And the reality is almost 90% of crimes against indigenous people are committed by non-natives. Let me repeat that. Almost 90% of crimes against indigenous people are committed by non-natives. Meaning, reservation marshals are almost always powerless to help. Plus, depending on a host of local, state, and federal law, 
non-Native officials, as in county, state, or federal law enforcement officers, also have limited jurisdiction around crimes on reservations, especially in cases of domestic violence. Even if outside officials know that a non-Native hurt an Indigenous woman on a reservation, they still might not have the power to press charges. The result? For the most part, non-Native people can come onto reservations and commit acts of violence against Indigenous women with impunity. It's bewildering and beyond messed up. I literally feel sick thinking about it. It's also why Aubrey's family is so frantic about the fact the police are taking so much time to investigate. And unfortunately, they only have one lead. Nine days after Aubrey Dameron goes missing, police start investigating her disappearance. There's not much to go on. Their only lead is a ping on her cell phone at 3.42 a.m. on the morning she was last seen. Officials trace it to an area near a pond about 100 yards from her home. After dredging the pond, investigators only find folding chairs and fishing equipment. For Aubrey's family, it's a blessing and a curse. It's not Aubrey at the bottom of the pond, but they don't find her phone either, or any clues as to her actual whereabouts. Aubrey's uncle Christian is especially worried. Given the harassment he knows she endured, he fears she may have been the victim of a hate crime. He's outraged by the delays from the police. He tells reporters, quote, "'Our family had to wait nine days before law enforcement decided our niece was missing. Anything may have happened in that time frame." End quote. And as the weeks go by, Christian gets the sense that the police still aren't taking Aubrey's case seriously. Even though there's not much to go on, tips do start trickling in. Officials are just slow to follow up on any of them. Slow enough that eventually, tipsters stop calling the police and start calling the family directly. When Aubrey's family then reports the information to the police, the county captain doesn't respond. What's worse, the sheriff's department won't let the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation or the Cherokee Marshals help in the case, even though both organizations offer their services. And this makes no sense. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation regularly aids the state's sheriff's departments. Cases like Aubrey's are exactly what they're trained to handle. As Aubrey's uncle says, the sheriff won't work the case, but he doesn't want anyone else working the case either. The Catch-22 is completely unnecessary, endlessly frustrating. And then, in July 2019, about three months after Aubrey's disappearance, Delaware County Undersheriff Gail Wells goes on record saying that despite Aubrey's prolonged disappearance, there's no strong proof of foul play. As if they've found any evidence at all. As if they've looked. It's infuriating. Someone shouldn't have to prove they're missing. A missing person certainly shouldn't have to prove they're in danger. Because how can they? So why do officials so readily dismiss Aubrey's disappearance? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. The sheriff's department misgenders Aubrey on the news. 
which to me highlights how little they care. They suggest that her disappearance is due to a high-risk lifestyle, clearly referring to her being trans and a recovering addict. Now, according to Christian, the authorities claim to have found messages exchanged between Aubrey and various men on the night she disappeared. And it doesn't matter what they were about, because police react by telling Christian that Aubrey, quote, knows exactly what she is doing, end quote. Which translates to, whatever happens to her, she has it coming. But let me put this plainly. This is victim blaming. It's cruel, unhelpful, and a clear indication for me that the sheriff's department is too bigoted to do its job. What really breaks my heart is if there weren't so many convoluted laws around cases involving indigenous people, maybe someone who wasn't so biased would have investigated Aubrey's disappearance. And maybe they would have found her by now. Instead, Aubrey's case has been cold since July 2019, when the sheriff's department decided it wasn't worth investigating any further. As of this recording, Aubrey's been missing for two years and eight months. Her family continues to live without answers. And they're not alone. As I've alluded to, indigenous women have been disappearing in mass for generations. And it's not just the adults who are vanishing. The last time Penny Cayadito saw her daughter, Anthonette, Anthonette was nine years old. It's April 1986, and the Cayadito household's an untraditional one. Penny Cayadito's a single mother of three. Each of her daughters have different fathers, and they're all active parts of their daughters' lives. They regularly stop by the house to hang out with the girls. A lot of family friends and neighbors stop by the house, too. People come and go as they please. It's a part of what makes the home so special. Everyone feels comfortable there. The Cayaditos live below the poverty line, which isn't so unusual for Gallup, New Mexico. It's a small town about 100 miles outside of Albuquerque, and many of its residents just scrape by. On April 6, 1986, Penny goes out for the night. She leaves her three daughters at home with a babysitter and returns not long after midnight. She immediately starts getting the kids ready for bed, but they're all sleeping in her room tonight, in Penny's bed. They're having a sleepover party, as they often like to do. They stay up talking until about three in the morning when Penny tells them they have to get a little sleep. Everyone has to be up early, 7 a.m. for Bible school. So Anthonette, Sadie, and Wendy drift off to sleep with Penny not far behind. In the early hours of the morning, a knock comes at the door. Penny doesn't wake up, but Anthonette does, and so does her eight-year-old sister, Sadie. There's a man outside, claiming to be one of Anthonette's uncles. Sadie hears a woman's voice as well, but she can't see her, just the man. Knowing better than to open the door for a stranger, they run back to bed and fall asleep. They're woken up again by more knocking. This time, Sadie stays in bed while Anthonette checks the door by herself. Sadie falls asleep before her sister returns. When Penny wakes up around 7 a.m., Anthonette's not in bed, which isn't totally unusual. Anthonette's father describes his daughter as nine going on 15. 
an old soul who embraces her own independence. So Penny assumes her daughter's in the kitchen making breakfast or something, but she's not. She's nowhere in the house. And when she looks around, she notices that both the front door and screen door are unlocked, which is strange. Penny's positive she locked them when she came inside last night, but stranger still, Anthonette's coat and shoes are right where she left them. Wherever she is, she's still in her pink nightgown. Penny spends the next four hours scouring the neighborhood and calling around looking for her daughter. Around 11 a.m., she reports Anthonette missing to the police, but the response she gets is infuriating. Officials tell her she has to wait eight full hours before Anthonette can officially be considered missing, which again, isn't true. In the meantime, Penny calls Anthonette's father, Larry, who races over to help Penny look for their daughter. When the police finally begin investigating on Tuesday morning, they don't find any signs of a struggle. They point to the unlocked door as an indication that Anthonette probably knew her kidnapper but there's not much more to go on. Five days after Anthonette disappears, police tell the Albuquerque Journal that they have several leads, but right now the plan is to backtrack, to re-question family members and neighbors, a task easier said than done. The Cayadito Estrada family is extensive and police have a hard time tracking everyone down. Of the ones they do find, many are hesitant to talk to authorities some because they have previous criminal records, others because they just don't trust the police. And given the history of relations between indigenous communities and US law enforcement, I can't say I blame them. Larry proposes a stopgap solution, hiring private investigators in hopes that people will be less reluctant to speak with a PI. But the problem is, this leaves the victim's family in charge of funding the investigation. And that shouldn't be the case. Ultimately, I'm not sure whether or not Larry scrapes together the money to hire a PI. He does, however, spend weeks knocking on doors and passing out flyers asking for information about his daughter. The entire Cayadito family is exhaustive in their search. They don't find any answers. The trail goes cold. Until a year later. On April 12th, 1987, police receive a phone call from a young girl. She identifies herself as Anthonette Cayadito and says she's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Before she can give further details, the police operator hears a man's voice in the background. He asks the girl who gave her permission to use the phone. The girl starts sobbing. The man starts cursing. And then an elderly voice picks up the receiver and asks who's on the other end of the line. The whole call lasts about 40 seconds. But it gives Anthonette's family hope that she's still alive and police an idea of where she might be. Unfortunately, there's not much they can do with the call. Authorities don't want to broadcast the recording on the news for fear that Anthonette's abductor might get spooked and hurt her. The risk is too high. It's heartbreaking. After hearing what they believe to be their missing daughter's voice for the first time in over a year, Anthonette's family is forced to go back to waiting. And four more years pass before there's another break in the case. 
1991, a server at a diner in Carson City, Nevada, waits on a disheveled couple who comes in with a preteen girl. Naturally, the waitress assumes it's their daughter. But during their visit, something strange happens. The girl drops her fork on the ground, over and over. Every time the server picks it up and replaces it, the girl squeezes her hand. She doesn't understand what the girl's trying to communicate. Not until after the family leaves, she's bussing their table and finds a note under the girl's plate that says, help me, call police. The server later tells police she believes the girl is Antoinette Cayadito, but it's impossible to know for sure. Officials don't have enough information to track the couple down. Again, there's some hope for Antoinette's family, but no answers. That remains the case to this day. Since 1991, there have been no new leads, and police have yet to name anyone as a person of interest in Anthonette's disappearance. And if you can believe it, Anthonette's not the only person in her family to go missing. Two years before the diner incident, Larry Estrada's 25-year-old sister, Louisa, disappears. She has a mental disability, and one day she goes on a routine evening walk around the neighborhood and never returns. Now, you would think that these two abductions have to be related. The police suspect Antoinette was taken by someone she knew. Presumably, Antoinette and Louisa knew a lot of the same people. But the terrifying reality is, abductions of indigenous people, especially women, girls, and two-spirits, are so common that statistically, it's more likely for their cases to be unrelated. In 2019 alone, at least 5,000 indigenous women went missing, and those are just the reported cases. The number is most likely much higher, especially considering indigenous women are often miscategorized as white or Latina. New Mexico, where Antoinette and Louisa both disappeared, has the highest abduction rate for indigenous people in the country. Please don't fall prey to psychic numbing. Don't let the magnitude of these statistics cause you to lose sight of the fact that each one of these numbers is a person. An Aubrey, an Antoinette, a Louisa. Their cases may not be connected by the same abductor, but they're connected by those numbers. And those numbers have a very long history. Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits have been disappearing for literal centuries. Activist Carolyn DeFord's mother went missing in 2000, and as she put it, it's a slow boat to turn around because it's a 500-year-old problem. But listen to me when I say this. That doesn't mean the boat can't be turned. Indigenous women are the most vulnerable population in the country. They're murdered at a rate 10 times higher than any other demographic. It's impossible to trace those numbers back to one root cause, because there isn't one. There's many. It's a statistic wrapped up in generations of violence and racism ever since European settlers first set foot in North America. But we can identify some of the problems that keep putting Indigenous women, children, and two-spirits at risk. One is lack of media coverage. To give you some perspective, I don't know whether Louisa Estrada's case ever got solved. 
I only found one article about her disappearance. Her story disappeared from the news cycle after that. Aubrey Dameron and Anthonette Cayadito's cases are two of just a handful that have gotten adequate news coverage for me to even report on. More investigative journalists are starting to cover the crisis than ever before, but that's a relatively new development. Historically, missing Indigenous women are lucky to get a quick mention in the news. If their cases do go public, chances are it's from their families elevating their stories through social media. In the face of these issues, as Carolyn DeFord puts it, there's a little bit of justice in the acknowledgement that there's an injustice. Talking about the problem is a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. Which brings me back to the jurisdiction issue in the United States, a problem that is endemic in Indigenous disappearances. In 2013, Congresswoman Gwen Moore summed up the baffling legal paradox by saying, quote, If you were a tribal woman and you were raped on native land, tribes don't have any authority over that perpetrator if he is non-Indian, even if he's your husband. The local police in that area don't have any authority. The county sheriff doesn't have any authority. The state trooper cannot come in and arrest him. And the only person who has any authority over that non-Indian is some federal agent in Madison, Wisconsin, 500 miles away." End quote. If that's not enough to make your blood boil, let me give this quote some context. Representative Moore said all of this on the floor of Congress while fighting to get the Violence Against Women Act reauthorized. Reauthorization is a way of updating a bill to fit the current needs of whatever role it fulfills. The update was, in part, meant to increase the power of tribal marshals to allow them to prosecute non-native people who commit violence against women on indigenous lands. Eight of the nine Republican representatives on the committee were hesitant to reauthorize the bill because of those expansions of power. As if this were a partisan issue. As if holding violent criminals accountable for their actions was a bad thing. Senator Jeff Sessions was the most vocal committee member to oppose the new provisions. Eventually, the act was reauthorized but only after including a watered-down version of the proposed expansion to tribal rights. And in the face of similar opposition, it later lapsed again in 2018. Now, when this happens, funding for Violence Against Women Act programs doesn't dry up overnight. They continue to operate on the most recently passed version. But in the case of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits, time is of the essence. These people are literally considered endangered. When they're abducted, authorities call them critically missing because the likelihood of them making it home is so slim. There isn't time to volley legislation around Congress. They need protection now, especially as the demographic makeup of native lands is changing and adding to existing dangers. As the oil industry grows, it poses an existential threat to indigenous communities. It's a problem outlined in the documentary Sisters Rising, which if you haven't seen, I highly recommend checking out. 
As part of the film, Lisa Burton details an attack that her teenage daughter suffered at the hands of four non-native oil field employees who worked and lived on their reservation. The predators planned her abduction and assault. It was premeditated and well rehearsed. They didn't worry about hiding their faces during the attack because they knew jurisdiction laws protected them. They knew they could get away with it. They counted on it. And this is maybe the most disturbing part of this cancerous cycle of violence. So often, indigenous locals know exactly who the perpetrators are. They just can't press charges because their hands are bound by US law. This is going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but in the year after the oil rigs were set up on the reservation where Burton and her daughter lived, the number of registered sex offenders in the area jumped from 48 to over 600 people. This crisis might feel dizzying, infuriating, and hopeless. But in 2020 and 2021, the government took two massive steps towards curbing violence against Native women. In 2020, Congress passed Savannah's Act, which requires the Department of Justice to review, revise, and develop policies and protocols that address cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people, or MMIP cases. Then, in 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced the formation of the Missing and Murdered Unit, which will focus solely on their cases. Also in 2021, Oklahoma Representative Daniel Pei authored and filed House Bill 1790, which he calls Aubrey's Law. It would create an Aubrey Alert, which would essentially be an Amber Alert for critically missing adults. The alert isn't just for Indigenous people. Critically missing adults also includes those with disabilities or high-risk occupations. But it was inspired by the disappearance of Aubrey Dameron, one of Representative Pei's constituents. The bill was later renamed the Casey Alert Act for Cherokee Nation citizen Casey Russell, who disappeared in 2016. Aubrey Dameron's Aunt Pam explains, Pei introduced the bill and immediately got feedback from lawmakers that they absolutely would not support the bill being named for a transgender person, although it seems like lawmakers may not support the bill at all. As of recording this, it still hasn't been voted on in the House, and it must be voted on by February 9th, 2022, or the bill will die. If you've been rage-listening over the past five minutes, I want to encourage you to join me and take action. Call your state representatives. Demand they support House Bill 1790, the Casey Alert Act. It won't solve every problem, but the Casey Alert is a small, relatively inexpensive way to make a major difference in cases of critically missing adults. I also want to encourage you to further educate yourself on this crisis. I've done my best to give you a glimpse at the problems we face, but there's so much more to this issue. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Organization is a phenomenal place to find resources. I'll also direct you to the Sovereign Bodies Institute, which seeks to build more comprehensive statistics on missing and murdered Indigenous people. Native people deserve to feel safe. This is their home. It always has been. 
long before it was ours. It's easy to forget this, because we're rarely reminded of the fact that there's somewhere between 2.5 and 6 million indigenous people living in the United States, with another 2 million in Canada. As I said at the beginning of this episode, they are not past tense, and we need to make damn sure it stays that way. Next episode. When a Hollywood actress goes missing in 1949, investigators find themselves venturing into the dark shadows behind Hollywood's brightest lights. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on cases like Aubrey Dameron's and Anthony Cayadito's, and what you can do to help, please visit Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA at mmiwusa.org. Again, that's mmiwusa.org. MMIW is a nonprofit organization whose number one mission is to bring the missing home, help families of the murdered cope, and support them through the process of grief. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances star Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.